in J.D. Salinger's classic novel, Catcher in the Rye. There is a character, a teenage character by the name of Holden Caulfield. And Holden Caulfield has some questions of faith, shall we say. At one point in the novel, he says, you know, I like Jesus and all, but I don't care too much for the other stuff in the Bible. Ever known somebody like that? Take the disciples, for instance. They annoy me, if you want to know the truth. They were all right later on, but when they were with Jesus, they were about as much used to him as a hole in the head. All they did was keep letting him down. I almost like anybody in the Bible better than the disciples. After all, Holden explains, Jesus picked them at random. He didn't have time to go around analyzing everybody. And I'm not blaming Jesus or anything. It wasn't his fault that he just didn't have the time. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you understand what Holden's getting at. It's not difficult to imagine how he got to that conclusion, is it? It sometimes feels like the disciples are playing an extended game of adventures in missing the point. <laughs> and yet, and yet, that's what makes the disciples so important, so integral for our understanding of following Jesus today. Understanding Jesus' earliest disciples really helps us understand ourselves as we seek to be his disciples now. We're continuing to think through the dimensions of a life that's centered in Christ, and these dimensions are also directions. A life centered in Christ looks up to God in worship, leans into community with others, and then leads out in mission to the world to our congregation, to our community, and around the world. We're engaging together Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, where we see Jesus do all three. Jesus looks up, Jesus leans in, and Jesus leads out. Hear together God's word. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now, that word that Luke uses there for spent the night is dianuk ter uo. I won't ask you to say it. Or maybe I should try to ask you to say it five times fast, right? Dianuk ter uo means to spend the night or to pass the whole night toiling on some sort of task. Dianuk ter uo could not be used for falling asleep on the couch and then somehow making it to bed. Dianuk ter uo could not be referred to, could not be used to, to refer to the, the night being dark. No. Jesus dianuk ter you owed. He was toiling in a task all night long. Jesus was persistent in prayer through the night. Dianuk ter you owe. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles. Notice, there are more than 12 disciples there is a whole crowd following Jesus, but he chooses 12 that they would later become apostles, right? And it begs the question of that dianuk ter uo, doesn't it? Had Jesus been in prayer about which disciples to choose? Or had Jesus been in prayer for the disciples he would choose? Luke tells us their names. There was Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, 
Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Twelve disciples to remember, to recall, to reform the twelve tribes of Israel, long since forgotten by God's people. Jesus went down with them and stood on a level place. I love that. I love that Luke tells us Jesus had been on the mountain, but when he comes down to the disciples, it's a level place. He's on their level. He's an equal with them. Not lording it over them from the mountain, but coming down and meeting them where they're at. A large crowd of his disciples were there, and a number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal region near Tyre and Sidon, they had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for gathering us in this place. We come to this place, to this time, to hear your word from a world that is distracted and divided. And God, so many of our hearts are distracted and divided as well. And so we ask, Father, that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would soften our hearts to the living word, Jesus Christ, present among us, to the written word, your holy scriptures, authoritative in our life for following after you. And now would you help us Would you open our eyes and ears to your preached word, that your word would not go out and return void, but that your word would bear fruit in our lives and in the life of others because we've heard it together today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, when Jesus calls these disciples to lean into community together, it's been at least a year, maybe a year and a half into his ministry. He's begun to garner the attention of the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees. And then we heard a minor note, dun, dun, dun. They're watching him closely, aren't they? They're none too thrilled about his ministry just before these verses in Luke 6. Just before we start reading in verse 12, Jesus upsets these religious authorities on two different occasions in only 11 verses. That's got to be some kind of record. First, Jesus' disciples are walking through fields, and they're plucking grain from stalks. They're rubbing it together and eating it like popcorn. The religious folks, with all their rules and regulations, are upset because these disciples of Jesus are working on the Sabbath. Now, to defend their actions, Jesus points them back to when King David, of all people, King David went into the temple and ate the consecrated bread that was lawful only for the priests to eat. Then, just a verse later, Jesus encounters a man with a shriveled hand. And again, it's on the Sabbath. Again, the religious folks with all their rules and regulations, they want to keep Jesus from healing this man. And Jesus asks, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? It's not exactly a Final Jeopardy kind of question, is it? I think I'll wager it all, Alex. And Jesus heals the man. 
because that's what Jesus does. And just before we start reading in verse 12, in verse 11 we read, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious, and they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is only chapter 6. But you see, Jesus is calling the disciples happened right as he's receiving this pressure from the religious authorities. He's forming a community who would sit at his feet and then would go out on their own into a world in need of healing. Jesus is forming a community who would follow his methods and follow his message. Jesus is convinced that these 12 are crucial to carrying on his mission, even if he wasn't with them. Now, it wasn't unusual for rabbis to have disciples. Um, You couldn't really be a rabbi without disciples. It's like that old definition of leadership. Maybe you've heard it. He that leadeth when no one followeth only taketh a walk. Right? (laughs) It wasn't unusual to have disciples. Right? But this is not how disciples became disciples. It almost seems desperate if you understand how disciples became disciples. It's been said that Jesus' invitation to these 12 men would be like Harvard recruiting from an elementary school. It would be like the Rams recruiting from a flag football team. Disciples of rabbis had to earn their place, applying in triplicate at a young age with good references, and then show prowess from early on in their childhood as people who understood the scriptures. Now, Around six years old, Jewish children would go to school for the very first time in a local synagogue. They would be taught by a rabbi. It was called Beit Sefer, the house of the book. And these six-year-olds would begin studying the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would start at six, and they would generally have all five books memorized by the age of ten. My 10-year-old, on the other hand, is getting pretty good at Xbox. (laughs) Now, children who did the best at Beit Sefer from 6 to 10 would progress to the next level of education called Bet Talmud. It was a house of learning. By age 14, these children would have memorized the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis to Malachi, 39 books. It's incredible what the mind can do when it doesn't have the option of streaming Netflix. Those remained after Beit Talmud would apply to be a disciple of a local rabbi. A level of learning known as Beit Midrash. And only some of them would be accepted. This was an exceedingly small number of teenagers by this point. The vast majority had returned home to the family business. They were again farmers, sandal makers. They were grape growers. Or like many of Jesus' disciples, they were fishermen sitting in their father's boat on the Sea of Galilee because they couldn't hack it at religious school. They were religious school dropouts. And here's the point. Why do I tell you about all those different levels of learning, all those different opportunities for education? Here's the point. Jesus decides on disciples differently. They did not apply in triplicate. They had no references. They had long since given up on their dream. Maybe it was at Beit Sefer at the age of 10. Maybe it was Beit Talmud at 14. Maybe a couple of them even applied to Bet Midrash, but none of them were accepted by a rabbi. And how do we know? Because where does Jesus find them? 
None of the disciples had what it took. None of them made the cut. But Jesus invites the not good enoughs. Jesus calls the can't cut it. It's not just to a big gathering to hear a sermon. And it's not just to see him multiply the loaves and the fishes. It's not just to witness him heal the sick. Jesus calls these 12 to be with him day in and day out, to sit at his feet that they might go out on their own with his methods and his message. It's like those four letters we've discussed before. The four most important letters in Jesus' alphabet, I-C-N-U. I-C-N-U. Jesus saw something in these 12 men that the rest of the world did not see. You see, all of those famous scenes on the flannel graph, the sermons and the miracles, only account for 20% of Jesus' time. Somebody actually added it up. The other 73% of Jesus' time was with the disciples, leaning in to community. Three quarters of Jesus' time is spent with these 12 men, and we don't know what they were doing. All we know is that Jesus saw something in them, that Jesus decides on disciples differently. For that time, Jesus was pouring into them. So how would you have responded to Jesus' call if you were there in your father's fishing boat? If you were there at your tax collector stand, how would you have responded to Jesus' call? Would you have left your nets and followed him? I sometimes wonder if if maybe Jesus had invited other people who said no. You see, Jesus is doing the same thing today. Jesus still invites the not good enoughs. Jesus still calls the can't cut it. Not only calling us to an hour a week sitting in rows or streaming from our couch, Jesus calls us to not only look up to God and worship, but to lean in to community, to lean into discipleship with one another. Remember, to be centered in Christ, we're called to doing the same thing as Christ. Why does Jesus look up and lean in and lead out? Because he wants us to do the same. I have to think that that 73% of that time when we don't know what they were talking about consisted of these kind of conversations. And friends, we need to lean in to one another now more than ever. Now more than ever, we have been distanced and divided. And now more than ever, we need to remember and to recall and to reform community together, like Jesus did, purposely picking 12. They, too, were a various assortment. They, too, were a, a wild bunch, weren't they? I mean, think about it. Think about um, the, the leader of the group, Peter. His first name's Simon, but then Jesus gives him the nickname Peter, which means rock, right? You're Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. But other people have wondered whether Jesus was actually giving Peter a hard time for being kind of a rockhead. <laughs> I mean, you can't read the Gospels and think, how is this guy Jesus' right-hand man? James and John were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, which sounds like a tag team in WWE wrestling, which fits. They had some serious anger issues. Do you remember when a, a town doesn't accept Jesus, and so they say, hey, could we call down some lightning and thunder from God above to just nuke the whole place? That actually happened. Jesus has to talk them out of it. No, that's not how God's kingdom works. 
Andrew is constantly referred to as Peter's brother. Apparently, his personality was so bland and boring, there was nothing else about him that made it worth remembering his name. It's as if the gospel writers are like, Andrew, you remember, the brother of Peter? Thomas was a twin, considered bad luck. James is referred to as James the Lesser. Ouch. <laughs> Bartholomew means sons of furrows. <laughs> then there's Judas Iscariot. But to top it all off, to top it all off, think about Simon the Zealot. There's a reason Luke tells us he was Simon the Zealot. Because zealots were an actual political group in the first century. They hated tax collectors. Because tax collectors had sold out to Rome. Tax collectors had sold out to the occupiers of the Holy Land. And tax collectors joined with Rome to steal from the rest of God's people. That's Simon the Zealot. Hates tax collectors. And Matthew tax collector. Do you ever wonder if Jesus made them share a hotel room? <laughs> you see, the challenges of the past two years have prompted us to isolate and to increasingly identify with those with whom we already agree. So when we think about leaning into discipleship in community, we naturally think about someone who lives near us, maybe works in a similar field as us, maybe makes about the same amount of money as us, votes the same way as us. But friends, those are like the nets the disciples left behind. It's no mistake that the gospel writers tell us this is where they were, and they left that life behind to follow after Jesus. You see, Jesus decides on disciples differently. Jesus purposely pulls together a diverse community with differences and even divisions where the only common denominator is him. And no, Holden Caulfield, it wasn't because Jesus didn't have the time. It's because that's what Jesus does. They were not wise by human standards, nor influential. None of them were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, and the things that are not. Jesus decides on disciples differently, not so that they might become more like one another. You know, Matthew, you should really listen to Simon and his perspective on things so that, so that you guys can somehow meet in the middle. You know, Simon, you, you might want to just ask Matthew about his family of origin and why it is that he joined together with the, the Romans who were occupying. You guys just lean in to, to one another and, and try to meet in the middle somehow. That's not Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal in deciding on disciples differently isn't so they'd become more like one another. It's that in all their differences and in all their divisions, they would look more like him. Holden Caulfield puts it mildly. He says that after Jesus was gone, well, the disciples were all right. In truth, after Jesus ascended to the Father, they went out doing the same things they'd seen Jesus done. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts that tell us all about it. 
looking up, leaning in, leading out, performing miracles, teaching, leading people to Christ. Massive world change from these 12 guys. Those 12? See, they embodied Jesus' own assertion. He once said, you will do even greater things than me. See, their going out had everything to do with first leaning in. In the summer of 2020, there were massive disruptions and differences and divisions that were played out on our cable news on a daily basis. After George Floyd was killed, there were these divisions amongst our entire country, within our community, and in our congregation. Brian and I spent a lot of time in conversation that summer. We weren't together in worship here, and we were struggling with how to continue leading this church in a time of such massive disruption, where there were such massive divisions and differences between us. And we became convinced that we should respond to the moment of what was happening, but we should also be prepared for the marathon of having difficult conversations in a rapidly changing world. And so many of you know, a number of you were involved in a class on racial reconciliation. We were convinced that if we were going to have this class, we wanted to make sure that it was rooted not in what someone said on the evening news, whether this channel or that one, what someone wrote in an op-ed in this newspaper or that one. We wanted to have the conversation based on what the scriptures tell us about God's creation and love for all people and his desire that his kingdom would overflow with every ethnicity. That's what it says heaven will be like. And so we engaged a study through a group called Arabon that looked at racial reconciliation through the lens of scripture and deep, thoughtful theology. And in the midst of those weeks together, meeting over Zoom, a number of us communicated our own feelings on what was happening in our world. And there were a number of differences, and there were even divisions. And by the end of that time together, they were not all solved. In fact, the very last time we were all together as a group, there were still ways in which partners or members of that group were sharing with one another ways that they had been hurt by another one. In the way that you framed that conversation, in the way that we discussed this, the way that we talked about that, I will remember it for the rest of my life. Now, I tell you that story because I think that it is a, a prime example of what God wants to do in our church. Not that he wants to bring us together that we might be more like one another, but that we might all be more like him. And that by leaning into community, we're not leaning into one another, we're leaning together into Jesus. And I tell you that story because in the midst of the differences and the difficulties and the divisions of that class, talking about racial reconciliation, everybody who is a part of that class is still here. Because we came to those conversations in a desire to lean into Christ. Not to prove our point, not to convince someone else, but to understand what it means to lean in to a Christ-centered life in God's family.
I'm convinced that that is the invitation for all of us, that God wants us not only to be gathered in rows for an hour every Sunday, or even gathered on our couch, streaming online, that God wants us gathered in to community, not only looking up, but leaning in. Just think of it. Think of all that the disciples affected in the world even after Jesus was no longer with them. The very first day of Pentecost, 3,000 people become Christians. It's an immediate megachurch. And the movement of the gospel spread throughout the globe with rapid success. Millions of people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior from those 12 guys who Jesus found on a smelly fishing boat. Look around. There's a lot more than 12 of us here. See, Jesus calls us not only to look up, Jesus calls us to lean in, to lean into him together. So with whom are you leaning in this week? With whom are you leaning in? You see, Jesus is calling you not only to a large gathering like this where we sing together and hear God's word together. Jesus is calling you to lean in where we can live out those one another's together, to love one another to encourage one another, to care for one another, to confess to one another, to grow with one another into Jesus' image. In a gathering like this, we can be anonymous. In a group like that, we have the opportunity to be authentic, to be honest, to be open about where we are and where Jesus is taking us. It's possible that you're sitting there now and you're thinking, well, I like Sunday morning, That's enough for me, and I don't think I need to be in a life group. I don't think I need to be in community, but maybe there's someone else who doesn't quite have it figured out as well as you do, and they need you. What would it look like for us to be a church that not only looks up, but leans in? Because to be centered in Jesus, we're called to do the same as Jesus, looking up and leaving those nets that we might lean in together. Father in heaven, We give you thanks for the disciples. We give you thanks that Jesus decides on disciples differently, that he decides even on us. We give you thanks that you have used the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to shame the wise, to shame the strong. God, we give you thanks that you have called us that you might equip us, that we might be and even more so become your people. Not only because we've gathered in these rows, but we have gathered together in circles to listen, to learn, to lean in. God, may we hear the voice of Jesus as clearly as those first disciples did. May we recognize the joy that he sees in us, just like he saw in them. That we might be, and even more so, become his follower this day. God, use us to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. Father, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us continue to lean in all the more as we see the day approaching. 
Father, we ask that you would continue to be with us, to lead us and to guide us. In the midst of our hurts, would you bring healing? In the midst of our concerns, would you bring hope? We pray it all in the name of your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.